Leaked White House vetting documents that raised more red flags than the club promoter dating your daughter. The lead starts right now. President Trump returns to Washington as the crisis with Iran takes another dangerous turn, and it's not nearly the only crisis at home or abroad commanding the president's attention right now. Thank you very much. New sanctions coming down on Iran as another acting Secretary of Defense takes charge at the Pentagon. Will maximum pressure on the regime lead to the negotiating table or to Tomahawk missiles? Plus, it all begins again this week. 2020 Democrats in training for the first debates of the presidential election season as one candidate's day job threatens to derail his upstart campaign. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the politics lead, President Trump careening from crisis to crisis as he escalates tensions, threatens harsh action, and then suddenly pulls the U.S. back from the brink. Today, President Trump announced new, quote, hard-hitting sanctions against Iran. The move coming after the U.S. apparently came within 10 minutes of of a retaliatory strike against Iran last week, according to President Trump, before calling it off. The president is also now putting off large-scale deportations of undocumented immigrants. For now, he says, he's giving Congress just two weeks to change asylum laws so as to alleviate the number of undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. The New York Times' Peter Baker refers to this trend as a variation on Teddy Roosevelt. In Trump's case, it's speak loudly and carry a small stick or carry a big stick, but wave it around without actually using it much. CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports on the president's sudden policy swings. I'll be signing an executive order imposing hard-hitting sanctions on the supreme leader of Iran. Today, President Trump announcing new sanctions on Iran. We will continue to increase pressure on Tehran. After pulling back on a planned military strike in retaliation for shooting down a U.S. drone, he's now upping the pressure on a crippled Iranian economy. I think a lot of restraint has been shown by us, a lot of restraint, and that doesn't mean we're going to show it in the future. It's the response Trump preferred over the one his military advisors pushed. John Bolton is absolutely a hawk. It's up to him. He'd take on the whole world at one time, okay? Sources tell CNN the president took a last-minute trip to Camp David after bucking the advice of his national security team. And no cabinet members or senior policy staffers joined him initially, with Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney going later. We're going to Camp David. We're going to have uh, meetings and a lot of work. The getaway coming as he changed his mind on Iran and postponed plans for nationwide raids for families with deportation orders. The people that came into the country illegally are going to be removed from the country. Everybody knows that. Sources say it was a call from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that got him to delay for at least two weeks. All this as the president is facing another sexual assault allegation. He pulled down my tights. Author E. Jean Carroll claims Trump assaulted her over two decades ago in a New York department store dressing room. It was over very quickly. It was against my will, 100 percent. Carroll said she's coming forward now because she wants the president to face consequences. He denies it. He turns it around. He attacks and he threatens. Trump is denying the claims. Uh, It is a totally false accusation. Now, Jake, one other notable thing that the Treasury Secretary said today is that the president had instructed him to also add Iran's top diplomat to the sanctions list. 
it seemed to be a last minute decision because he was not included on the list that the Treasury Department sent out shortly after Mnuchin briefed reporters. And he said it would be happening later this week, which breaks with the longstanding policy of not announcing sanctions for fear that that individual could then try to evade them before they go into effect. Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins with the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this. Uh, Jen Psaki, President Trump tweeted today about the Strait of Hormuz and China's and, and Japan's activity there. He said, quote, why are we protecting the shipping lanes for other countries many years for zero compensation? All of these countries should be protecting their own ships on what has always been a dangerous journey. We don't even need to be there, unquote. Now, he used to be the spokesperson for the Obama State Department. Um, why are we protecting the shipping lanes? In well, his, his facts were a little loose on that one. No okay. surprise in terms of the percentages. Um, but look, the fact is that oil prices will uh, be impacted regardless of whose ships they are on that are going through the strait, uh, the strait as he called it. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, too, about this is that minutes after this, uh, after he tweeted, Secretary Pompeo uh, went out and made a statement about how important it was um, to protect the Strait of Hormuz. And, uh, and uh, I think Lindsey Graham also tweeted tweeted uh, that it was incredibly important. So President Trump, obviously, I don't know if he learned a fact or he thought he learned a fact and he wanted to sound smart. It's a little bit unclear, but most of his supporters are not even with him on this. So I don't know if we'll hear more about this from him at this point. In fact, we don't we have Pompeo uh, last week saying something similar. Take a listen. We're going to guarantee freedom of navigation throughout the streets. This is international challenge. This is important to the entire globe. Uh, the United States is going to make sure that we do take all the actions necessary. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's the same administration. One's the president, one's the secretary of state, and they have the complete opposite position on the importance of the U.S. Uh, preserving the right of passage in the Strait of Hormuz. Yeah, the president's impulses here are very much in conflict with longstanding U.S. traditions. The president doesn't seem to understand a lot of these traditions. Why are we paying for NATO? Why are we paying to protect all of these other countries? Why aren't they paying us to protect them? Uh, it's sort of the businessman's approach to foreign policy, where the president believes that because the U.S. has all of these assets and has uh, spends all all of this money on foreign policy that other countries should be stepping up to the plate as well and spending money to protect themselves and not having the U.S. protect them. So uh, it's interesting to see the, the contrast between the president's advisors who uh, subscribe to this longstanding U.S. policy of, you know, we need to make sure we have freedom of navigation. We need to make sure that there are international rules and norms that are followed. And the president who believes that the U.S. has been taken advantage of and we need to have an America first policy where we only look after our own in, our own interests in a very narrow way. So it's really interesting to see those two uh, approaches play out within the same administration. One wonders if it's a brinkmanship, uh, the, the, the trend that we're seeing where President Trump sees an issue, he, he makes it even more tense by threatening a very harsh action uh, and then backs away uh, and expects accolades for his restraint. Sure. I mean, you know, tariffs in Mexico, the ICE raids that have now been postponed. I think this is what Donald Trump calls negotiating. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people voted for him because they thought that he would be good at this kind of thing, that they, they're they fine with this style of negotiating and just kind of throwing something out there, even if it runs counter to what everything else in his own administration is saying. And even if it's something that he ultimately doesn't follow through on, you know, and I think that, that Trump himself would point to, to moments like this where he felt like he was successful. It, And I think the tariffs in Mexico would be like a good example of that. He would point to that and say, look, we got Mexico to come to the table and to give us some things that we wanted. And we didn't have to to go through with these tariffs anyways. And it is true that Mexico stepped up quicker uh, and they actually are sending these uh, National Guardsmen to the southern border of Mexico in a way 
with the speed and the determination that they hadn't seen before. And I would say on the trade stuff, I don't agree with his underlying philosophy, but that's there's a little bit more to work with there because I feel like there is an underlying philosophy. <laughs> when it comes to foreign policy, I do think he's truly torn between non-interventionism and the idea of being a tough guy. And so going to the brink and pulling back sort of serves that need in some way. But it's not like this is a traditional team of rivals where he's got some people doing input. They're just on different sides of the issue. I will say it's important to remember that Iran brought us to the brink and their actions are are of import in that way. And they have been cleverly sort of avoiding what I think we all recognize would be a red line, which is actually hurting Americans. Um, and I, I think that the Trump tough guy would win out in that situation. I do want to uh, mention E. Jean Carroll. Uh, she's the writer uh, who has the cover story in New York Magazine uh, saying uh, that President Trump, alleging that President Trump sexually assaulted her in the mid-90s. That story came out on Friday. On Saturday, um, you talked to both of her friends, uh, who contemporary, you know, she told the account to contemporaneously, uh, and you've interviewed her. You've talked to her. What do you, what do you make of her credibility? You know, it, it was interesting talking to her because I think she's sort of grappling with this in the same way that everyone is grappling with it. Um, she does not have a book about Donald Trump. She has a book that mentions this really crazy, horrifying interaction that Donald Trump never happens. And it's kind of buried hundreds of pages into this book. But she didn't want to shy away from that. You know, this is a book where she recounts all of these horrific in interactions she's had with men throughout the course of her life. And they're the kinds of interactions that are more horrible than maybe some women have ever had to deal with. But I think a lot of women who exist in this world have had things sort of approaching these uncomfortable interactions with men. And this is really a book about that. So I do think that lends her credibility. You know, the other thing is, when you talk to people who have been through traumatic instances like this, there's usually something that, that sticks out to them that's not necessarily sort of the most horrific thing. So, you know, she writes in the book that Donald Trump penetrated her, which he denies, but what was, you know, she really focuses on is how he grabbed her tights and ripped her tights down. And I was talking to one of her friends who said, you know, it was like she was in shock when she's retelling me this. You know, this is right after it happened because the friend is thinking, oh, my God, you were just raped. And she's like, can you believe that he ripped my tights? Like, can you believe how aggressive he was? Did he grab my tights? And so that, to me, all just, just felt like, a, you know, kind of very sincere in her retelling in the book and, and in the way she shared this account with her friends at the time. Again, Donald Trump has denied that this ever happened. He's denied all of the allegations of assault, harassment, lewd behavior that came before her. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it happened 20 years ago. So it's up to people who are watching this to decide what they believe. Right. Although, of course, it, it is in keeping with the allegations made by at least 16 other women and what President Trump said on that Access Hollywood tape. Um, stick around. Uh, nothing like the president of the United States questioning years of military strategy the same day a new acting defense secretary starts on the job, plus the Department of Defense, far from the only revolving door in the Trump cabinet. A look at how red flags have been raised and then Ignored or dismissed when it came to staffing the Trump administration. Stay with us. Our world lead now, President Trump slapping new, quote, hard-hitting sanctions on Iranian leadership, including the supreme leader, some of them at least partly in response to the downing of a U.S. surveillance drone last week. Mr. Trump reiterating he does not want to go to war with Tehran and hopes the pressure campaign will drive the regime to the negotiating table. But, as CNN's Barbara Starr reports, Iran dismissed the sanctions as, quote, propaganda and is threatening to take out even more U.S. aircraft. The supreme leader of Iran is one who ultimately is responsible for the hostile conduct of the regime. 
President Trump today imposed new sanctions on the office of Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, aimed at denying access to financial markets. These measures represent a strong and proportionate response to Iran's increasingly provocative actions. Actions like last week's downing of a U.S. drone by an Iranian missile. They've done many other things aside from the individual drone. You saw the tankers and we know of other things that were done also which were not good and not appropriate. The president insisting Iran must give up its nuclear weapons program and saying he still is willing to talk to Iran's leader. My only message is this. He has the potential to have a great country and quickly, very quickly. The administration's strategy, lock up Iran's economy in hopes of forcing it to start negotiations. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says Foreign Minister Javad Zarif is next. The president has also uh, instructed me that we will be designating Zarif later this week. New sanctions are also targeting senior commanders of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps that the U.S. says had been involved in recent attacks. Morning, everyone. Keeping shipping secure is now a top Pentagon priority, where it was Mark Esper's first day as the new acting Secretary of Defense. President Trump questioning decades of U.S. naval security operations keep the Strait of Hormuz open, tweeting he wants the U.S. to be paid for providing security. All of these countries should be protecting their own ships on what has always been a dangerous journey. And the Iranian foreign minister in his tweet back agreeing with the president, saying that the U.S. should not be in the Persian Gulf. Jake? Hmm. Joining me now, Ambassador Richard Haas. He's president of the Council on foreign relations and a former uh, official in the George W. Bush State Department. Ambassador Haas, thanks for joining us. This president seems to think the sanctions are punishing the Iranian economy and it's only a matter of time before Iran is forced to negotiate. Do you agree? Do you think the strategy is the right one and that Iran will come to the table? It's half right in the sense that it's punishing the Iranian economy. The numbers I've seen, Jake, is between last year and this year, the economy could shrink by as much as 10 percent. Uh, but it will not force the Iranians to, to come to the table. What it will do is lead the Iranians to do more things like shoot down drones or attack tankers. And what I think is going to happen is we're going to have, you know, we'll ratchet up sanctions like we did again today. They will then respond. And one of these days, one of us, more likely Iran, will go too far and the United States will feel compelled to respond militarily. So I think if we just turn up the pressure and we don't associate it with a serious diplomatic process, then I think uh, rather than lead to successful diplomacy, it, it will lead to conflict. Well, what do you think President Trump should do? What, what should be the next step? What I think he should do is say what our goals are. It's not regime change. It's policy change. We, we want to have an extended nuclear deal, the one that the United States you know, negotiated in 2015 that this administration got out of. It was flawed in certain ways. We ought to cover missiles, and it ought to, the constraints on the Iranian nuclear program need to be far, go far longer into the future. And what we ought to announce is that if Iran signed up to that, then we would be prepared to ease some of the sanctions. But if we, you need to have some incentive for Iran to, to come to the table. They're not going to come to the table if we just pressure them. The president tweeted today about the U.S. patrolling the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf. He wrote, quote, uh, why are we protecting the shipping lanes for other countries many years for zero compensation? All of these countries should be protecting their own ships on what has always been a dangerous journey. We don't even need uh, to be there. Obviously, he's referring to uh, U.S. energy uh, independence from Iran. 
Is he right? Does he have a point? Uh, not really. The United States has been doing this for, for decades, not simply out of a narrow self-interest, but because the world economy depends upon, uh, among other things, Middle Eastern oil. And we are very much linked. Our economic fate is linked to that of, of, the, of the global economy. Our presence in the region also has other fa features. It's reassuring to Israel. It does potentially push back against Iran. It supports some of the countries that have been traditionally friendly to us, particularly the Saudis and others. And if the United States continues to pull back from this part of the world, we shouldn't be surprised when, one, there's more conflict, even more conflict, and two, more countries start thinking about nuclear weapons because they won't have us to rely on anymore. Iran today denied that they were hit by a U.S. cyber attack, which sources tell CNN uh, had targeted an Iranian spying group with ties to the country's uh, Revolutionary Guard. Uh, this is obviously a, a major tool in America's ability to retaliate against Iran. Uh, does it go far enough in crippling Iranian capability? Does it go too far? What do you think? It doesn't, it doesn't cripple, and it just shows that you've got all sorts of tools you can bring to bear. Iran, by the way, has cyber tools they can bring to bear. They've done it in the past against uh, the Saudi oil company. They could do it elsewhere. And I think it's just a reminder, Jake, that if there is a conflict, it's not going to be fought by airplanes and tanks on an Iranian <coughs> battlefield. It'll be fought throughout the region using all sorts of militias, uh, cyber, cyber tools, terrorism. It'll spread you know, to Saudi Arabia, to Israel. Hezbollah will attack Israel with thousands of rockets. This will not be a classic uh, war. To, to use an old phrase, it will not be a cakewalk. All right, Richard Haas, thank you so much. Always good to have you on. Appreciate it. Thank you. As 20 Democrats prepare for the biggest test of their presidential campaign so far, only one of them is already being tested with a hometown problem that could have national implications. Stay with us. We're back with our 2020 lead with just two days before the crucial first debate. 2020 Democratic candidates are looking to put their best faces and foots forward. But Pete Buttigieg is facing a crisis in South Bend that's revealing some problem areas during his eight-year tenure as mayor there. Tense relations between the city and its black residents. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports from South Bend, Indiana, this comes precisely as Buttigieg is trying to win over African-American voters across the country. It's time for you to do something. If you can't do it, stuff your ass down. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg facing a growing challenge at home as he prepares for the first major test of his presidential run, this week's national Democratic debate. It's disrespectful that I have three boys that I have to teach today what to do. Both town halls and community events in Indiana this weekend erupted in anger over alleged racism in the South Bend Police Department. We've been fighting this, we've been fighting this all our life for, for not the racism to be on the force, but it's there. What are we going to do The recent death of a black resident, Eric Logan, at the hands of a white police officer highlights a long-standing problem Mayor Buttigieg admits he has not been able to solve. We've done so many things over the years. Obviously, it hasn't gotten us to the point where there is full trust or even the level of trust that we just need. During the eight years he has been mayor, the South Bend Police Department has slowly grown less diverse. 26% of South Bend's population is African-American, but just over 5% of the South Bend police force is black. 
nearly half of what it was in 2014. And in 2012, just weeks after taking office, Buttigieg fired the city's first black police chief following allegations the chief improperly taped officers' phone calls. I'm sick of these things being talked about in political terms, in, in theoretical terms. Um, like it's a show sometimes. It's people's lives. Still, the issue highlights a political vulnerability for Buttigieg, a lack of support from African-American voters. You planning for president and you want black people to vote for you? That's a downfall. That's not going to happen. According to 2016 exit polls, African-Americans make up about 20% of all Democratic Party voters, a crucial voting bloc. How do you think this is going to impact your stand with African-Americans, not just here in South Bend, but nationally as well? Right now, I'm not really thinking of the politics of it. It's not out of any lack of trying. It's a, it's a lack of getting to where we need to be. And the mayor also wanted to. The mayor also wanted to say that he's not trying to run away from the problem. That he wants to be on the front lines in terms of trying to find a solution. But Jake, the reality is there's still a number of people here in this African American community who feel as though very little, if any, progress has been made during his time here as mayor. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, let's talk about this, Jen Psaki. How do you think Mayor Buttigieg is is handling uh, this awful issue? Uh, Politically, I, he doesn't want to handle it. He doesn't want to talk about the politics of it. It's inescapable. The politics are right there. Well, no doubt. It's a really obviously difficult situation. I think he's doing all the right things, which is showing up and being there and exhibiting a quality that, frankly, is lacking in our current president, which is empathy. He's not obviously solving the situation for them. Now, while it is very different, that those scenes that have been played remind me of times that I was traveling with President Obama, and he was there talking with, and he was the first African-American president, as we know, but listening to and hearing from communities that were impacted by gun violence. He has done some things as mayor. Obviously, the statistics are troubling. The reason that police have body have cameras there is because he equipped them. Uh, he took a step to ensure that but the cameras were turned on. That wasn't something that was done in this case, which was criticized. I think he needs to stay there as long as he can leading up to the debate. And he needs to find more ways to continue to uh, it, it, you know, be with the community, not in front of the press necessarily, but visiting with family, going into the community, showing that he's not somebody who is just looking for the, the one moment and then he's going to move on to his national campaign. So I think he's doing the right thing now. How will impact him politically? I don't know. I don't know that voters in, in South Carolina, African American voters are looking at statistics in Indiana. I think they're looking at his empathy and how he's handling it uh, on a personal level. Uh, that may be, but I mean, there's how he's handling it now. And then there's the record, the eight years as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And obviously people feeling that not enough progress has been made. And he doesn't have much of a record beyond that. This is his calling card, how he managed his small, small size city is how he's introducing himself to the rest of the country and saying, I was able to do X, Y, Z in South Bend. This is why you should make me the president of 300 plus million people. And I think this is one of the problems that he has is that, you know, if people are looking at him for the first time and seeing that he's facing trouble in his city and having uh, residents believe that he, they have not been heard, they've not been listened to, that he's not done a good job of managing that city, then it's going to be difficult for him to show uh, voters on a national stage that he can do what they want them want him to do uh, for the country. So I think that's the challenge that he faces in introducing himself to black voters, but also to voters of all different uh, nationalities and backgrounds uh, as he tries to manage this uh, issue locally while also running a national campaign. 
Senator Bernie Sanders today uh, uh, unveiled his plan to completely eliminate the student debt of every American. He says he's going to pay for it with a new tax on Wall Street. Uh, between this plan, plans for tuition-free college, Medicare for all. Um, this, I mean, he, he has been in many ways previous to this presidential run leading the charge in, in the Democratic Party. Um, what do you make of it? This is many, 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 so many trillions of dollars. Um, and the thing about a very crowded primary is that he will, at, he will be asked very specifically at times where those trillions of dollars are coming from. And when you're trying to up the ante on Warren's attempt to give uh, debt forgiveness, she's going to ask you, okay, well, this seems sort of unrealistic, although I think hers is fairly unrealistic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I should add, by the way, that part of the reason we have a lot of college debt and prices go up exponentially over the years is because more cheap debt allows universities not to be accountable for those prices. And I would say that free debt might make that problem worse. Interesting. Um, and, and, uh, and Sarah, the moderate uh, think tank, th- third way, which uh, Bernie Sanders has been attacking as like the corporate Democratic arm. Um, They've been sparring with Sanders. They said this about the proposal, quote, there's nothing about that which will help Democrats appeal to the bulk of black, white and Latina voters, Latin voters who don't have a degree. They want policies that equip them with skills so they can earn a good life, not ones that shovel more tax dollars only to the four year degree holders who are already doing well in this changing economy. Interesting that they're kind of like attacking Bernie Sanders. Quite an amusing fight going on yeah. between Third Way and, and Bernie Sanders. Like, I want to kind of want to, like, go out to cocktails and figure out what's go- actually going on there. Um, but I do think, look, that's, that is a fair criticism that all Democrats, I think, who are running right now are going to have to grapple with. I mean, sure, student loan debt and the, the price of college, those are both important issues. Those are both very important things to talk about. But, you know, there's a wide swath of people who do not have college degrees, who are not going to get college degrees, and are increasingly see, have, seeing themselves sort of slivered out of the American economy. So what is the answer for those people going forward. And I don't think we're hearing that same conversation around vocational training, around, you know, making sure that you can still make a living wage in the United States if you are not one of these people who has the privilege of being able to go to college. I mean, I think certainly some candidates would say that everyone should go to college, but I think there are others who would say that it's not for everyone, that there are people who should be able to make a living in the United States and can offer a lot to the United States economy without getting that advanced degree, and we haven't really seen much of that conversation. And Tulu, Beto O'Rourke proposed something interesting today, a war tax. If the U.S. were to enter a new war, this would impose a tax on households who don't have current members of the family uh, in the military or any veterans in the family, and that would help cover the Healthcare costs of people who fight in the war. It's a, it's. I've heard, I've seen a lot of blowback about on, on social media about it, but I found it a very interesting idea in terms of the sacrifice that one percent of the country uh, pays, and for the other ninety nine percent of us. Yeah, O'Rourke has had a, a long history. He's served on the Veteran Affairs Committee while he was in Congress, but he's also been really concerned about these sort of unending wars that we've been in in the Middle East, and he believes that uh, there needs to be more shared sacrifice. There needs to be more uh, of a sense that every American is paying attention to the fact that we have soldiers and troops all over uh, the world and that other people should be sacrificing as well. And I think that's why he put that policy forward. Stick around, everyone. Elizabeth Warren keeps saying, quote, I've got a plan for that. We wanted to know who's behind these plans. It's a CNN exclusive. A look inside Warren's policy factory. Next. In our 2020 lead today, candidates are kicking it into overdrive, rolling out policy proposals ahead of this week's debates. Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, Jay Inslee, all announcing new proposals on the campaign trail today, addressing ways to pay for college loans, veterans care, and different ways to address the climate crisis, respectively. To supporters of Elizabeth Warren, however, those guys are just playing catch-up. Warren has put out more policy proposals than any other candidate, and according to the polls, it might be working. CNN's MJ Lee now 
has an exclusive look inside Elizabeth Warren's policy shop. At Elizabeth Warren's campaign headquarters in Boston, every day is policy day. So we've got our plan rolling out tomorrow. We're calling it the Small Business Equity Fund. On this day, the team behind the ideas candidate is preparing for another policy rollout, already their 22nd plan this year. I have a plan for that. Warren's substance-heavy campaign has helped catapult the senator to the top tier of a crowded Democratic field. From student debt cancellation to the wealth tax to breaking up big tech, her top advisors say Warren's ideas are endless. We will get emails at all hours of the day. What do you pick first, right? And what do you pick next? And what's the most important and how would you prioritize them? And how much detail do you go into? Because there's only so many hours in the day. CNN got an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at the team that helps Warren's policies come to life. This is all mobilization here. This is our data team. Warren's policy team has four full-time staffers. But for a campaign that's constantly churning out proposals, a single policy plan from the conception of an idea to its public rollout requires input from nearly every corner of the organization, from the social media and mobilization teams to the political and communication shops. As we get feedback, I think we'll start to figure out, like, okay, how's this going to look and feel on the ground? How do we put it in simple terms? How do we um, make anyone understand them, understand how they will affect their lives, how they will change their lives for the better, um, and how we communicate that. I believe this is how... On any given policy plan, advisors telling CNN that Warren herself weighs in at every step of the process, through memos, phone calls, and in meetings, and that it's the senator who ultimately signs off on all major details of a proposal. And helping fuel Warren's policy factory, the real-life stories from voters on the trail. Some of it's from the selfie lines, some of it's from uh, meetings and town halls that she's done. She listens and she remembers, and you know, if she hears enough, she wants to make sure that she does something about it. How many more policy plans can we expect? Well, there will be a, there will be a lot. Now, Warren's campaign says to expect another policy proposal coming out tomorrow. We should see her discuss it in Miami tomorrow evening. This is all, of course, ahead of the first night of the Democratic debates on Wednesday, where she will be center stage. Jake. All right, MJ Lee with the Warren campaign. Thanks so much. The one thing President Trump says he would do over since being sworn into office. That's next. We have a very good vetting process, and you take a look at our cabinet and our secretaries. A very good vetting process, the president said. That was after the departure under a cloud of sorts of his previous acting defense secretary and two and a half years of massive staff and administration turnover. Our friends at Axios got a hold of some vetting notes from the Trump transition team, documents with a red flag after red flag detailing Swamp-like ties and background checks, cozy relationships with lobbyists, even domestic violence allegations missed or ignored in a rush job to fill administration vacancies. As one Axios editor put it, not only were many since-scandalized cabinet secretary problems foreseeable, foreseeable, they were actually foreseen. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, the president says he regrets one hire, but not for the reason you might think. A Republican document accusing a possible Homeland Security boss of taking donations from a group linked to white supremacy. Also from the Republican National Committee, an environmental protection chief plagued by allegations of coziness with big energy companies. And an agriculture secretary with serious conflicts of interest. 
all those damning assessments, not all proven true, show how a vetting team assembled by the RNC described candidates under consideration for the Trump administration, many of whom ultimately got the jobs. This according to internal papers obtained by Axios on HBO, even as Trump was on NBC saying he has few regrets. If I had one do-over, it would be I would not have appointed Jeff Sessions to be attorney general. I, Donald John Trump. The Axios documents from early in Trump's term seem to foreshadow all the investigations and allegations to come, painting the selection process as chaotic and laced with private suspicions, even amid the president's public praise for his entire team. Great job. She's fantastic. He's a great guy. Among other allegations in the vetting papers, now ousted Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke describing Trump as undefendable. Budget Director, now Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, saying Trump is not a very good person. And Energy Secretary Rick Perry describing Trumpism as a toxic mix of demagoguery, mean-spiritedness, and nonsense. Rick Perry, you're doing a great job. We're proud of you. The Republican National Committee is dismissing the report, telling Axios these over two-year-old documents were initial pre-interview briefings, and those selected would have gone through more thorough background checks. And the White House is characterizing the papers as disgruntled establishment D.C. swamp creatures' cowardly leaks. Still, the papers would seem to be even more evidence that Donald Trump does not run the tight ship he claims. Rather, his ship is full of turmoil, accusations, and yes, a lot of leaks. Jake? You bet. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. So this was great in the Axios piece. One RNC vetter said, quote, To be honest, the process was such a disaster and such an S show, and there was... There were so many unqualified people coming through. And then they talked about Ben Carson, who's the secretary of HUD. Uh, He went on to say, you know, I'm like, oh, gentle Ben is unqualified and thinks that pyramids store grain or whatever. Great. At least he's not beating his wife and his wife's not appearing on Oprah. That's a reference to failed Commerce Secretary nominee Andy Puzder. Mm -hmm. Um, Has he learned any lessons since this disastrous process, Sarah? Um, I want to say it's gotten a little bit better. I mean, it's not such a disaster as it was in the very beginning. I mean, remember, it was supposed to be Chris Christie who was in charge of this transition. He got the boot, and then there was essentially no vetting for anyone coming in. It was just such a catastrophe. I mean, we were covering at the time. So I think in some ways it's gotten better. In other ways, I mean, you look at the stuff like the Shanahan story last week, and you can't help but wonder, like, this is these are court documents. I mean, these are public records. This right. is not, like, super top-secret stuff you have to go out there and find. You know, if, if investigative journalists are able to dig it up through public records, <laughs> then, then the administration should be the one who's, who's kind of, like, finding that and raising those questions early on. Also because... It's hard and it's embarrassing for people to go through this process publicly. Yeah, and and in fact, uh, you're talking about how it might have gotten a little bit better, but I was thinking about this weekend when the guy who was tapped to be the new immigration czar in the White House went on Fox and started openly attacking the acting Homeland Security Secretary, Kevin McAleen, and take a listen. You got the acting Secretary of Homeland Security resisting what ICE is trying to do. He does not support this operation. And I tell you what, if, that, if that's his position, then he's on the wrong side of this issue. I mean, is it really getting better? That guy's going to be, I mean, according to reports, he's going to be the immigration czar. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's not a disciplined operation by any stretch of the imagination. And look, the last time that we went through this, they had 
a bit of an excuse in that they did not know they were going to win. I mean, that right. was a real that was a real <laughs> issue. And then part of the vetting process, which probably should not have been part of the vetting process, was get rid of people who said maybe some bad things about Donald Trump. Trump. Right. So that cut down their pool and they ended up with this not good vetting process and a very small pool of people and couldn't get people where they needed. Next time, being the incumbent, that will not be the case because you have to have the expectation that you'll get there. But I have not seen a ton of change or a point person put on this that actually makes that change. Uh, even today, the president's handling a, a very sensitive situation with Iran with an acting defense secretary, Mark Esper, who just started on the job uh, today. Uh, he's got 10 secretaries to working in an acting capacity right now. And the president believes that having them in acting capacity means that they're sort of trying out for the job. And that's not necessarily <laughs> what you want when you're making life and death decisions at the Defense Department. You don't want someone making decisions on an acting basis, trying out for the job, trying to tell the president what he, what he wants to hear. You need someone who's confirmed by the Senate, who has the full sort of backing of the Senate in order to make sure that they can present the president with the best information, even, even if it's something that he doesn't want to hear. And it's not clear that that's what the president's getting. He'd rather have people that are more like on The Apprentice, where he can say, you're fired, I'm going right. to bring someone else in. And uh, that seems to be how he likes to operate right now. You've actually been through this process, Jen Psaki. Certainly. Um, and I remember also being in the White House during the transition when Chris Christie was fired um, and they, there was nobody to give information to. But I will say what is normal is I remember vetting people for the Supreme Court of when even when there was like eight options in the end. And we each had stacks for each person this big. And this was going through the White House Counsel's Office. So just it's a reminder. It's not normal. This isn't how things should go. Um, and that's why they're not catching things, clearly. A suggestion for Vice President Pence before a scheduled visit tomorrow. That's next. In our Earth Matters series today, Vice President Pence will visit the National Hurricane Center tomorrow. Perhaps while he's there, he could check in with the scientists of NOAA on the climate emergency. Those scientists say it is a, quote, threat to the health and well-being of the American people. Here's the vice president yesterday. Do you think it's a threat? Man-made climate emergency is a threat. I, I think the answer to that is going to be based upon the science. Well, the science says yes. I'm well, asking you what you think. There's many in the science that... The science community debate, in your own administration uh, yeah. at NOAA, yeah, I got uh, at, the, at the DNI, they all say it's a I threat. Look, what the but president has said... For some reason. What we, I think we're making great progress reducing carbon emissions. America mm -hmm. has the cleanest air and water in the world We'll continue to use market forces. We don't have the cleanest air and water in the world. Uh, I think we don't. According, I mean, I, uh, you get back to me with some statistics we'll make, to show we'll According to one academic study, the U.S. actually ranks 10th in the world for air quality, 29th for water and sanitation quality. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.